Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of The Big Podcast with Shaq, the team sits down with likely first-round draft pick Joe Burrow. Any disappointment about missing out on that big night that you were expecting? Yeah, you know, there is definitely some disappointment. Right now, I'm planning on just sitting on my couch with my parents and watching it on TV, I guess. Do you uh, worry about the talk, how they try to compare you against Tua? You know, Tua's a great player, just like I am, and just like there's a lot of really good players in the draft, and, you know, we're all looking to make a name for ourselves at the next level, and I guess they'll find out 10 years down the road, and there's discussions throughout time about it, but... You know, we can't control that. Be sure to check it out on Podcast One or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Kevin Pelton of ESPN. We talk about his awesome Dynasty Rankings piece that came out earlier this week on ESPN. We also talk about The Last Dance documentary, which is debuting on Sunday, and the exciting news about Jalen Green and the expanded G League opportunities for fresh out of high school prospects. Really excited about that. Episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Use the Podcast One promo code for your sign up bonus. This episode runs a little bit under an hour. Lots of great stuff in here. Uh, I would recommend reading KP's piece beforehand if you can, because we refer to it a lot, and I think it's more fun to experience it the first time by reading it as opposed to just the two of us talking about it, though. I love the conversation, of course. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, as always, for having me. Once I heard about the project that that you were working on and that uh, ended up being released on, I think it was Thursday morning at ESPN, might have been Wednesday night, uh, on Dynasty Rankings, I thought it would be a great time to talk to you because it's something that even though I'm not a historian of the game – that I've been very interested in, and it was also something that I was really happy you in particular were doing because it is hard to get the methodology right here, what you value, what you don't, and how to, how to kind of square what is a dynasty and the windows and everything like that. So do you want to start by just walking through the process a little bit? Yeah, so you know, I think like uh, most people who are trying to provide content at this point with no games, you know, I had uh, a conversation with my editors a few weeks ago about ideas, and one of the things that came up was dynasty rankings. And uh, you know, my editor was like, "Wait, didn't we already do that?" Because it feels like something we've talked about many times over the years. In fact, I found an email from last year during the finals where you know, uh, he was saying if the Warriors had won, they had wanted me to do a look at that for the end of the series, uh, which you know, obviously never came to pass at that point but uh when i had contemplated this before i had never been satisfied with you know the the first cut of it is okay we look at you know which team accomplished the most over a five-year window well that doesn't necessarily define a dynasty dynasties are all sorts of different lakes depending on you know when players come and go in the case of someone like lebron james in miami uh when teams age out of contention or some other contender arises you've got this fascinating case of the spurs who are a dynasty unlike any other where you know it it plausibly can said to have gone from 1999 to 2014 and even beyond that if you count beyond just championships so you know what i settled on when i started thinking about this is borrowing the concept of replacement level from the work I do analyzing players. So the the essential idea was if we can come up with a rating for each season, then we come up with a replacement level for that season. And if you're above that level, which is, you know, in, in when you're analyzing players, replacement level is, you know, kind of some of the worst players in the league, generally speaking. Yeah, like filling a roster level. spot, basically, or yeah. a spot in the rotation. In this case, because we're talking about dynasties, we're talking about still some of the very best seasons. You know, that's uh, we want to borrow very high for a placement level. But anything you do above that continues adding to that as long as you, you know, stay more or less above that. And then you get kind of harshly punished when you drop down below that so that, you know, for example, we're not saying that the the 2000, I don't know, 2005 Chicago Bulls were part of the dynasty. Like clearly they should be way out of that period by that point. So that was, you know, the way I put it together. And now there's not a specific timeline. It's just based on whenever in your cycle that total peaks. 
Right, and that led to some some fascinating results. Like, I mean, even if you look at the kind of the lower end of the top ten, you talked about defining the Spurs. I mean, so it ended up being that, according to the way the process you just defined, the window was from 2001 to 2017, which is, I think, in, in many ways, I mean, obviously their score, they rank they rank as the sixth the sixth strongest dynasty in your metric. That is one part of it, but I think the the greater mark of that is the window, two thousand one to twenty seventeen, when if you look at the comparable time period and other teams who I mean the Warriors window is five years, the Lakers Shaq Kobe window is short. Like it, it's incredible that the Spurs, like that the the dynasty's added metric stays positive for that long. Yeah, I mean, you even see teams in here who have had multiple dynasties within that. I mean, the Lakers, the uh, the most recent back-to-back championships for the Lakers in 2009 and 2010 uh, end up, or uh, I'm sorry, 2010 and 2011, I should, no, 2009-2010, uh, they end up just outside, they're an honorable mention, just outside the top 10. But that's coming, you know, within a decade of the end of the Shaq-Kobe Lakers. So, you can fit both of those Lakers dynasties basically into the period that the Spurs uh, occupied. So, yeah, it's and I, you know, I think some of their fans are are understandably upset that the Spurs don't rank higher uh, because of the fact that if you look kind of at the total of the run, which and then one of the quirks of this is because of the fact that they got eliminated in the first round in 2000 when Tim Duncan sat out that series with a meniscus injury where they were kind of being cautious with him early in his career and obviously a decision that paid off down the road. But that was negative enough because they lost in the first round that it wiped out their 99 championship that isn't technically counted in the dynasty rankings. But uh, uh, still, it's a little tough to compare like what they achieved in total over 17 years and say that, you know, that's necessarily fair to to what the Warriors achieved in, you know, five years uh, because the fact that I do think there has to be some accounting for like how much you dominated, you know, at any given time and that, you know, kind of per year, basically. Right. And I mean, San Antonio, four championships, five finals appearances during that time is nothing to, nothing to, you know, it's, it's an accomplishment, but it is different than making the finals every single year like those Warriors did. And, and, just because, like, I mean, just because two accomplishments are different, and you know, one has to end up being higher in the rankings. I can, and I can understand why San Antonio fans can get a little bit salty with that. But it is a, it is a singular achievement that I, I think you explained well why it is a little bit, why it is a little bit different. But then that does put it the longevity. I think helps put it above something like what the Bad Boys Pistons did, where it was, you know, they were great, but it was only for a shorter period of time. Agreed. And, you know, really, oftentimes when we have any of these sort of rankings, whether it's best player best team ever we're arguing about is not so much what the teams wore or what they accomplished we're arguing about what we weight the most and you know you can come up with different things whether you weight longevity whether you weight just sheer dominance and back-to-back championships which there also was a bonus in there for winning back-to-back and that hurt the spurs a little bit because you know it just so happened that they only went every other year for a period of time and never managed to go back-to-back but uh uh, I think this ranking pretty reasonably balances all those factors. I agree. But yeah, it it is. And I mean, getting back to players, I mean, that's something that I've always thought is a an interesting conversation that isn't had as, as often. Uh, I got into this a little bit with your former podcast partner, Ben Golliver, about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and my theory that if we if we cared about this a little bit more, the argument about who had the best career is a fun conversation independent of who the best player ever was. And it can be hard to reconcile those being two different things, but you know it gets into the same idea of what do you weight peak versus longevity and it I mean especially now when there isn't as much live action to debate, I, I think that it's a worthwhile discussion to have in terms of figuring out how to reward certain types of excellence and yeah, obviously rewarding certain things by requirement comes at the expense of other things. Yeah, if we're not going to have the conversation now, I don't know when we're going to have it all, other than, I guess, uh, with the 75th anniversary of the NBA coming up in a couple seasons here. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if they end up – I mean, the the fun part, if they end up doing something with NBA 75 like they did for the 50th, is not necessarily about uh, – if they're going to just add 25 people, they can do that. But who gets taken out would be wild. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I mean, you recall that uh, uh, 15 years ago, I guess it must have been, TNT did – the next 10 
10 years after the top 50, but they did not take anyone out. They were just adding 10. I, it'll be interesting because I, I think it would be perceived as such a slight to take someone out of the top 50 that I think they probably will just add 25 now. I don't think you could probably do the math on the fly, but if you want to give a rough estimate, something that I, you know, going through, I've focused a lot more on the NBA since let's call it 2005. And one of the, one of the championships that I thought could really swing this because of the, some of the escalators you have in there is if Miami had beaten the Mavericks in 2011, like even though that was still a four year run, you know, that's how long the, the Heatles were together. It, you know, if it had been a three-peat as opposed to a back-to-back in the middle of four consecutive finals appearances. I, I, you know, I was thinking about that and obviously the Warriors losing in the finals to the Raptors last year. Not to diminish the teams that beat them. Everyone's a worthy champion. But I was thinking about some of the, the near misses that ended up shaping this list too. Let's see here. That would have pushed the Heat above the Spurs and into sixth all time had they won that championship. Interesting. Yeah, that was that was kind of my thought because I knew they would go above the 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 two the at least the first the Minneapolis Lakers team, but probably above the Shaq Kobe because of the the way it was structured and how good those teams were. And then is for last year's Warriors that would have moved them to. What is this? No, incorrect. would have left them fourth so they would have flipped spots with the 80s celtics but not still moved into that top three which kind of in a class by itself the top three i would say well yeah especially i mean when you look at the at that lakers the, the showtime lakers nine finals appearances in 11 years that success over a sustained period of time even though the warriors would have won four championships in six years that's still a, a level of sustained dominance that that team never just didn't reach do you feel like the 80s Lakers are a little underrated in this conversation? I think to me that the the Russell Celtics obviously are always going to be in this conversation. The Jordan Bulls with the six championships are always going to be in this conversation. I don't know if the 80s Lakers are quite as heavily in this. I, I agree with you. And I, I think part of the, the challenge separated them that might be affecting them is the idea of concurrent dynasties i i mean though those the russell celtics are the archetype for this really i i think you could argue maybe if you went back to the montreal canadians i'd have to look at their numbers of the dynasty that there's no one else that's around at the time and i think that's also something that weakens for some people the spurs argument is that they were concurrent with all these other really good teams right. that affected everything and like a, a true di- the idea that a true dynasty would prevent another dynasty from existing at the same time and i you know, with the Lakers having the Celtics through a lot of that run and then the Bulls for the kind of the end part of it, I think that does run against them. And it, and also, I mean, just the, the, the challenges of, of, but the challenges of making it through as many times as they did, I think that they're worthy of a place here, but I also kind of understand why they get comparatively marginalized compared to the two that nobody argues about. Yeah. And I think the other aspect is probably, I mean, right now the, the 90s are in more of a sweet spot for nostalgia than the 80s are. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I, I, the other kind of the other element of it that it, that does is weird about the Lakers ones not getting this, the 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 shake that they maybe deserve is that it ended because Magic Johnson retired for the first time. You know, it wasn't a you know like let's say if this Warriors team doesn't come back, where it was a more yeah there were some aberrations this year, but you know the, the, I wouldn't have expected the Warriors to make it to the finals this year even if they were 100% healthy and you know absences or something else i mean a player retiring due to due to a like due to a disease that's outside of the court and everything like that with magic's hiv that is a very unusual way for a dynasty to end yeah i mean it definitely felt like they were on the downside sure. at that point even though they had made it back to the finals in 91 after losing earlier in 90 uh, given the age of some of the other players, but Magic himself was, you know, still very near the peak of his game and probably had a few years left at that level. Yeah, and and so yeah, I, th- I think that is a reason to a reason to kind of give them not more credit because you don't get credit for things that didn't happen, but a reason to have them more firmly in that conversation. And something else I really liked about the Lakers' inclusion in that group when you, I mean, there was. A lack of player stability, obviously, for the, for the Bulls. I mean, you had the first and second three-peats. The holdovers were MJ, Pippen, and Phil, basically. But I don't know why. Maybe it's because I, I do really value coaches in the modern NBA that the Lakers turning over their coaches 
twice, so three different coaches during that window, is in some ways, it's not more impressive, but I mean, when you think about it, it's like, okay, you have Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, you're going to be a really good team. But to to have Jack McKinney and have Paul Westhead and have, of course, Pat Riley. Well, and then, then technically in the dynasty rankings, also Mike Dunleavy. That's right. And that that's really remarkable. And I mean, so if you go through the other teams, one, two, four... Wait. Wait, one didn't have the same coach the entire time. Oh, that's right. But I, I definitely still an extension because Bill yes. Russell took over as player coach. I believe yeah. the last two seasons. Yeah, I believe it was it was the last two. Um, yeah, Jim Barnett's gonna be mad at me. Um, but and then <laughs> and then I mean the Warriors at the Warriors at five. That was also gets in the short runs. And the Pop- Celtics also had multiple coaches during that run, right? They went from Casey Jones in, to in Bill Fitch to Casey Jones yeah. to Chris Ford. I believe so. But like, Chris Ford might have been after 88. I think Ford was after 88, but I'm not 100% sure. This is this is a Ben Taylor part of the conversation, or at least a somebody who knows basketball history a little bit more than me. But yeah, I also, I, I also have this information in a spreadsheet in front of me, so I, sh- I should probably just be looking at that. <laughs> but I, I, I was just really impressed with that part of the, of the Lakers run because, I mean, especially in the modern era, and the 80s were a little bit different for, for a bunch of different reasons, but having that sort of continuity in terms of style and system and approach can be really important. I mean, the Warriors changing coaches is was an integral part of their p- place on this list. And to think of and and I mean, you could argue of course Phil Jackson for the for the Bulls and everything else. So yeah, I think that it is a it is an a, another one of those like it's an accomplishment to have that sort of turnover. And I mean in San Antonio they they had organizational stuff and of course some of the stars, you know, Tim Duncan's incredible run as a as an integral piece of their success. But I, I like that almost all of the teams in that true rarefied air have some unusual thing that sets them apart of even these other great teams. I mean, to me, it's really identified with the stars. Like I called them earlier, the Russell Celtics. The dynasty ended when Russell retired. The Jordan Bulls, Jordan retired. And, and Scotty also got Like obviously the entire team got broken up. The Lakers, the dynasty ended because Magic had to retire. The Celtics, the dynasty ended because Bird played six games. The following season was never quite the same due to injury. The Warriors, well, we'll see, but Kevin Durant's departure. San Antonio is then the rare exception where technically their dynasty outlasted uh, Tim Duncan by a year because of the fact that they made it back to the Western Conference Finals the following year and you know had one of the better records in NBA history that, that season. So, uh, you know, they're the exception there. The Lakers breaks up because Shaq gets traded. Uh, the, the Heat, LeBron leaves. And Detroit may be the exception here where they didn't have any clear, you know, player movement. But it was just kind of they, they aged out of it a little bit. Aged out of it and, and, ran, and into, ran into a bus. Yeah. Right. I'm assuming that the 2015-16 Warriors had the best dynasties added of a team that never won a championship i mean it's hard to imagine considering they went 73-9 oh uh, of any of the individual teams yeah yes that, that's another would... thing for the warriors is like one of the years they didn't win the championship they had the best regular season ever and then they came one game short of winning the championship yeah, and still added a lot of dynasty points in the process but right. yes because of the fact that your your score in an individual season is based on uh, your regular season winning percentage, which they had the best ever, and then how far you advance in the playoffs. So losing the finals is as far as you can advance by definition. And then there's also a factor for how big the league is. So the fact that they were the runner-up in a 30-team league scores you more points than being the runner-up, for example, in an 18-team league. Yeah, and that that comes up with the Minneapolis Lakers, of course, because the the NBA and the BA uh, the NBL the the NBA, they were NBL BAA then NBA. Um, they do not create credit for the NBL technically. Yeah, that's right. Um, and 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 that that is something I think going back to the the Celtics and nothing ever can tarnish what they did, but they did it in a very different league, both in terms of how many teams were in and the sophistication of those teams. I mean, they're the the success of Red Auerbach just running his team so much more competently than everybody else and also, you know, getting securing the services of Bill Russell. There's a great story. I can't remember if I included this in my book um, about because territorial rights existed then that Red tried to get Will Chamberlain to go to school close enough to Boston where he would have been eligible right. to be a Celtic. And, you know, that's just being good at your job. It's, it wasn't anything nefarious or anything like that. Will turned him down, ended up having his his path to NBA stardom, which was, you know, just not through the Celtics. And so, I mean, think about just how much they benefited from having not only a singular talent in Bill Russell, of course, and a lot of other ones, but having by far, but basically a professional organization when nobody else did. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's, there's kind of two perspectives on this. By definition, it's much easier to win a championship if there's only eight teams in the league than 30 teams. Although the other flip side of it, which is interesting, is that, you know, if you kind of rate teams by the strength of the league, uh, the the tail end of that run, you know, even more so where it was still only nine teams in the league in 1966, by which point, you know, there was a lot of NBA caliber talent. Uh, you know, that that ends up a pretty high water mark in terms of the quality of play in the league for a period of time. And then you have the rapid expansion, the arrival of the ABA is a, is a arrival to the NBA and the league quality falls off pretty quickly. So those teams, you know, it was a little harder that for them in some ways to dominate the league in terms of like winning a bunch of games because you're if there's a second good team you're playing them, you know, 12 other times per season as opposed to four times now. But conversely, it was easier for them to win championships. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And ch- changing the structure does does materially does materially affect it. How did the eventual results, because I'm guessing that, I mean, it can be a little bit of ebb and flow. How did the eventual results jibe with what you expected going in were there teams that really surprised you in terms of how high or how low they were relative to just kind of the way you thought about them you know i hadn't really thought very much about how the minneapolis lakers were going to place on this list but uh they they naturally were an important dynasty in the early days of what would become and then what was the nba um you know i had i had some thoughts in mind in general like you know if it was anyone if it was anyone but the the 80s Lakers, the 90s Bulls, or the the Russell Celtics in the top three, like that that would not have passed the laugh test to me, and would not have been something I would have wanted to put out there. So that was you know kind of a, a guiding light for me. Although you know within that, didn't I'm necessarily guessing that wasn't ha- too challenging though. No, I don't think there was any of the models I looked at that didn't have those three teams at the top. They might might have ordered them in slightly different uh, ways. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know that any of them are terribly surprising to me. Something I guess that- the one team that might be worth talking about is one that ended up an honorable mention, the 2000s Pistons. Yeah, the, I, I was reminded when you – when uh, you know because you, you start the piece with kind of the honorable mentions and, and some of the methodology stuff that – they they would have to me they would have been a surprising inclusion but i do think that they were a good inclusion in the honorable mention because of the idea we just got into this with a couple teams including that lakers run through the 80s and early 90s of consistent excellence even though it didn't produce the same kind of fruit as a lot of those other teams did yeah i mean i think you can make arguments either way for the pistons because they came very close to being back-to-back champions i think people forget that now that 2005 finals against the uh, spurs went seven games they might have oh, won God, it that, o- for- that 05 finals was one of the first ones i ever watched and it almost it almost got me out of basketball <laughs> Oh, no. It was heinous from what I recall. Well, it's, it's a good thing you didn't watch the uh, 2003 finals then. Uh, right. and But also if Robert Ory doesn't have that huge, I believe it was game five in Detroit that allowed San Antonio to go home uh, with a chance to win it. I think Detroit still won game six off the top of my head to force the game seven that San Antonio won at home. Uh, but, you know, they were, again, very close to winning that series. Uh, and then they were very close to getting back the next year. They had the best record in the Eastern Conference in the regular season, at least possibly the entire league. That next year with a new coach in Flip Saunders taking over in a slightly different style, they became more offensive-minded. But uh, they had home court advantage against that Miami team with Shaq and D. Wade that ended up beating them and then eventually Dallas in the finals to, to win the championship that year uh and then 2007 were heavy favorites again to make the finals lost to lebron in his kind of first breakout series the uh the huge game that he had in detroit big fourth quarter to announce his arrival uh now the counter argument with the pistons is you know the the thing they get the bulk of the points for was they made the conference finals six years in a row but they were doing it during basically the dregs of the eastern conference when you know probably three or four of the five best teams in the league were all in the West. That's why I thought for me, it would have been surprising if they were included is that that greater context of making it to the conference finals, but the conference finals were a reasonable expectation based on where they were relative to the rest of their opponents. You know, yeah, it's still, it's still an accomplishment to beat everyone that's in front of you, but it's less of an accomplishment if the teams that are in front of you are weak compared. I thought, I thought about some sort of way to adjust for strength of the, the conference you were in, but I, I didn't find anything that was, you know, parsimonious and, uh, and made sense 
The other honorable mention that I thought was compelling, I mean, you had the, the 08-11 Lakers, which I, especially considering, you know, like, as, as small of a thing as you, you might think, I mean, the Kendrick Perkins injury in in Game 7, in that was that was 08, correct? No, that was 09. Yeah. Um, that was 09, because then, yeah, 10 and... Um, but I think I think that you know because I think the Celtics for me if they had been fully healthy they would have been the f- they would have been the favorites to win that series I don't know if that's bear borne out by that's just how I remember I felt at the time but also the the seventy seven to eighty three Sixers a you know group that kind of that culminated in, in the almost fo 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 teams just uh, another uh, like I thought they were the most kind of in some ways the most compelling non inclusion though again I understood why they didn't make the top ten. Yeah, I only won the one championship, but we're in the finals several times. And, you know, another group that went through a few different evolutions because, you know, when at first it was obviously it was Julius Irving's team and, you know, the that team that loses the first year of the after the merger in the finals to the Blazers, then, you know, end up with some classic series in the Eastern Conference against the uh, Celtics, make it back to the finals in 80 and lose to the Lakers in, in an 82, and then finally break through after they add moses malone and and he's the mvp and win the finals in 83 yeah again and with with so many of these like the the iterations are something that make it that make it impressive and you always wonder like could it have gone a little bit differently and all that but that's that's you know there are the what-ifs with basically every team in this other than arguably maybe the number one team just because so many things both by mostly by their own design and by the structure of the league just went so well for them you're not still looking back on that one final series they lost (laughs) i'm not um, but I'm sure I'm sure there are there are some people in the greater Massachusetts area that are. Yeah, of, so, of a certain age. Of a certain age. Plenty more to talk about with Kevin Pelton, but first a message from Bet Online. Since there's currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might then think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on, from their online casino to poker and blackjack, as they are bringing the Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Men 20 simulations you can wager on. They have entertainment betting, including Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, all open 24 hours a day and all online. If you want to check it out, use the Podcast One promo code for your sign-up bonus, and also, of course, tells you came from us. And uh, for all my NFL football fans following the upcoming draft, stay tuned at the end of this Real GM Radio episode for Ross Tucker's expert draft analysis presented by Bet Online. Visit their website or use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus. Remember to use that Podcast One promo code for your sign-up bonus as you sign up for a free account at BetOnline, your online wagering solution. I mean, I'm sure this was part of the inspiration for, for getting this done to the the number of a, a time within the number two team on the list's run is the subject of the ESPN documentary, which as somebody who is starving for content, basketball and non-basketball, is the last dance. And I'm I'm really excited about the the level of detail and just because there 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 I'm sure there are just so many stories from that those teams in that era, especially when you consider that even though it was fairly recent in the the grand scope of basketball history, much less you know like American popular culture or anything like that, but it was a very different media environment then. So those teams weren't as insanely covered, both with the players providing their own content through social media and everything else, but also just with the proliferation of the internet media and everything else. So I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more potential for things that we don't know. I mean, what's interesting is I think that in the context of the time, and I'm sure this will come up in the documentary, it seemed like an incredible amount of media coverage for the Bulls. But now relative to the standard that has shifted so much in terms of uh, greater media coverage, now it's probably not going to look as as remarkable to us in hindsight. So that'll that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. But yeah, I mean, I think the in some ways, one of the greatest compliments you can play to the 90s Bulls is that they were such a singular force, such a dominant force during the period where Jordan was playing full seasons and not playing baseball that all these other teams in the 90s are defined in opposition to the Bulls. So it's the Knicks-Bulls rivalry. It's uh, the the Rockets winning during the period of time where the Bull where Jordan was you know not not playing full seasons. It's Utah losing back to back finals even you know 
the the Sonics team that I grew up watching, their loss to the Bulls in the finals in '96. Uh, the the those teams don't stand on their own because of the fact that none of them, other than those Houston teams, uh, was able to win championships, but stand as you know kind of the vanquished opponents. I guess I think of uh, uh, in the Free Darko book. Uh, their their historical book, I think it was uh, the. There's uh, a great illustration that I actually have on my wall here of the last shot by Jordan over Brian Russell. But it's not just Brian Russell on the ground. It's like basically all the other teams that they beat in the '90s losing to Jordan in that moment. Yeah, I remember that picture. Uh, that that book is is amazing, by the way. I, I, both, I mean, both. There, I believe there are two Free Darker books, and I loved I loved both of them. But yeah, I mean the. The definitive nature of those Bulls teams. I mean, even so, it's fun for. I think the documentary will be fun also for me because I was alive during that time. I remember the obsession over the Bulls. They were some of the only basketball that I watched in that era because there wasn't a lot of basketball watched in my house that didn't really start until I was in college. But it was, you know, Michael Jordan and those Bulls. And then that was really, in, in terms of professional basketball, that was really all that mattered. And, like, even as focused, you know, to a degree as, as I ended up being at times on the Warriors because lived in the Bay Area, they were the the dominant team. Even just the way that LeBron's Cavs and then eventually, you know, like the Lakers before, you know, he got hurt and everything like that, the way that was covered, it never – to me, it never reached the same kind of dynamic that it had with the with the Jordan Bulls and everyone else. I mean I think there are a variety of reasons for that. You know, again, the media landscape, games are on TV more often whereas, you know, the, the national TV was limited at that point to TNT games. I guess maybe there were some TBS games way back in the day. But, uh, you know, and then the Sunday NBA on NBC game of the week. And how often was that going to be the Bulls at that point? Well, a lot of the time. So you were seeing them, you know, there there wasn't league pass. Uh, and maybe at the tail end of that run, uh, league pass existed in the, in the late 90s, but not not certainly for the first three titles. Like you were seeing your local team and then you were seeing the Bulls and then also just the way the league was covered again, you know, not the, you know, kind of. Uh, specialized coverage that we see today where whichever team you care about, whichever player you care about, you can find all the information you want. It was heavily dominated by Jordan and the Bulls. So, you know, you inevitably, whether you loved the Bulls or hated them or some combination thereof based on whether they were playing your team, you kind of, again, saw everything through the prism of them. Absolutely. And it... Yeah, I, I'm. I'm very. I'm very excited about it. I'm extremely excited that it's going. That we're going to start seeing it during the during the hiatus. And is is there anything in particular? I mean, because you you especially being passionate about the Sonics, which were a, you know were a part of the Bulls' run. Uh, is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to, like ans- answering, or just just in general, just seeing where it goes? I, I don't know about answering. I'm curious whether they bring up the uh, – the, I know the 96 finals will come up, obviously. Gary Payton is one of the many people who was interviewed for this. And uh, you know, I, I think one of the, the previews I saw noted that uh, Jordan dismisses Payton's comments that you know the finals in 96 might have gone differently if Payton was guarding him from the start of that series, which was one of the adjustments the Sonics made after falling behind 3 nothing and were able to force a game six in that. So you know, just seeing how that's discussed is certainly going to be interesting. I'm curious to what degree, you know, we're going to see kind of gallows humor from within the locker room about that team, about the concept of it being the last dance. Also getting into Scottie Pippen that year, uh, his, you know, unhappiness with his contract. And I feel like it was when they were in Seattle, which might have been in like February of that season off the top of my head, where the reports really begin to circulate about he's not going to come back and play unless he gets an extension or is promised something with his contract, uh, which obviously didn't come to pass, and he did come back to play and help them win that championship. But you know, it's all those it's all those kind of like day to day storylines and ups and downs of a season where you know this is something that you know we've talked about a bit. But when we look back on these championships in hindsight, they seem destined. They seem like inevitable the entire time. And you know, the Jordan Bulls more so than most did seem that way. 
But when you get down into the day to day of it, there's always going to be these, you know, times of doubt during the course of a season and, uh, you know, seeing how the Bulls handled that and, and to what extent it felt real to them and, and to the coverage of them will be interesting to see. And I'll also be watching it in the context of um, my current colleague, your former colleague, Ethan Sherwood Strauss's book on the Warriors and how, I mean, granted, I was closer to it than the 90s Bulls. The the feelings of it being the end in that cycle, like that was something that a lot of us didn't talk about publicly, but that a lot of us understood. Not, you know, not nothing, nothing from Durant. Obviously, that was the source of plenty of public and, and private animus, but the I, there with a lot of these teams especially when you have people who know them well and and you sometimes have people within the locker room who who are willing to talk about parts of this a little bit differently that you can get that greater sense of well it might it might continue but it's not going to continue in the same way so yeah i, I wonder if there are going to be parallels there between the last dance and last year's words which weren't guaranteed to be the last dance but had that feel a lot of the year yeah, I mean, I think the difference is probably just, you know, the obsessive, like we've been talking about, the level of coverage and the obsessive nature of it, it felt like it played out much more in real time. I mean, we do the, you know, you go back, I, I wrote about the Jordan shot in game six of the 98 finals as part of our discussion of the, the greatest shots in NBA playoff history. And we watched the uh, NBC broadcast at the last minute of that game. And, you know, Bob Costas says that may have been the last shot he ever takes in, I think, a Chicago Bulls uniform, but maybe he said NBA. Because uh, we were aware of the possibility that he might retire, that Jackson was going to be out. So it's not like we didn't know the stakes, but I just don't think, you know, the 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 tone of the other thing is the tone of the coverage has changed where, you know, at the time it was so much more focused on the next game uh, than just the immediate thing that was ahead. Whereas now we are constantly thinking about what are the implications of this? What is this going to mean for free agency? What is this going to mean down the road? That's a different mindset, I think, than existed in media coverage of the NBA in the 90s. Well, why would people possibly focus on on the next offseason, what kind of what kind of low life would do something like that I, I when there's basketball going who would on? Be, who would be more concerned about transactions than actually watching the games? Yeah, Come and, on. and and obsess about Kevin Durant's future destinations when he's already somewhere that's successful. I don't know. I mean that 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 could be anybody. But salary cap minutia. Come on. Yeah, but I, I think that yeah, it's some of the juxtaposition there is. But I, I mean, I try not to focus as much on how things are covered, but there is this nexus of how things are covered and how they are perceived that does really matter. It affects the way that fans remember an era and the way that we understand it. I mean, it's it's a very different context, but I think about how when a big event happens, sadly, a lot of times there there are tragedies. We the consensus that emerges in the first few days, like the early reporting about something, ends up being very different from what ends up being the reality. However, that perception ends up being very persistent and pervasive because at the time when people were consuming the most of it, that is what they consumed and that's how they interpret it. So I think there will be a lot of added context, and I'm I, I think people are just. Are, are interested. I mean, the, that team is just fascinating. But I wonder if it's going to if it's going to change kind of the zeitgeist a little bit with a team that is already so known and established. I think for sure, because again, they're just things you can't possibly remember from twenty plus years ago. Because there's just a finite things number of things you can remember. And again, we're having to give a lot of that space to minutia of the salary cap. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, what you're saying is basically the the famous adage about journalism being the first rough draft of history. And part of it is, you know, kind of what the original reaction to something is describes the the second wave of reaction because you're going to, you know, either agree with or disagree with one way or another, it's going to be informed by that initial reaction. Yeah, I totally agreed. That's a great point. And a different kind of first wave of history actually happened earlier on Thursday before we recorded this. And I want to talk with you about it a little bit. And that is the kind of the I, I think of them as two separate pieces of news that are, of course, intertwined, which is that Jalen Green is not going to go to college and instead is going to go to the G League in what is a a new form of, of 
I guess, contract, a new a new arrangement that the G League is going to have where players are going to get significantly more money. The number that I've seen is $500,000. They will also there, – there was some reporting. I think Chris Haynes had this first about potential of his college scholarship after the fact and, and other support in place. And what thrills me most about it is even though it will always be a challenge to have players – in an unassi- kind of an unassigned part that is connected with the eventual league when they're, they're affiliates, I think they're getting closer to the only real workable way of doing this, which is having an independent entity within the G League that can pay that type of money. And I'm thrilled about that because it's support for the players. They don't have to go to a different country. And it could potentially be a great platform for players in the G League who are more more experienced too because getting them getting more eyeballs in the G League getting more attention on these intriguing young players before the NBA fixes the age limit. Yeah, so I think to what you're saying like the idea that the number one prospect in high school is not going to play college basketball it's not that shocking at this point in 2020. We've seen enough quality players, whether it's, you know, just kind of take the redshirt year as we saw with Darius Baisley and, and Jalen Q two years ago, or we've seen this past year with RJ Hampton and Lonzo Ball being part of the NBL's Next Stars yeah. program. Or, or even the functional red, the refunctional redshirt of James Wiseman. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's that's not uh, a surprising thing anymore. But but the fact that it's to go to the G League and this new model that seems like it's going to be extremely competitive because, you know, as compared to the idea of going to play overseas, which, you know, has dates back to Brandon Jennings and Emmanuel Moutier would be another you know example of that in the past. Uh, now it's a chance for these players to do this in their home country. In it sounds like a big market as opposed to one of the smaller G League markets. That's, you know, I'm sure a big deal in making this more appealing as opposed to the college route and with a salary that suddenly makes it very worthwhile for players to spend that year in the G League. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting in the context of one of the first things I watched after uh, after the NBA shut down with all this extra time I have in the evening to uh, to, to watch movies and TV was uh, the, the documentary that uh, – that's HBO, right? The scheme uh, about the college basketball FBI scandal from a few years ago. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to see that. I have not seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. it. It's well done. And the one thing that really stands out from it is you've got all these different parties in here. You know, obviously the people who are being investigated by the NCAA assistant coaches and, you know, a, a manager, basically an aspiring agent who was responsible for actually funneling the money to players and to coaches. And then you've got the head coaches and you've got the NCAA and not once in the FBI, who is prominently involved in, in not very flattering fashion in this in this documentary, not once does anyone express, hey, let's look out for what's best for these players, what's best for their development, what's best for them becoming the best basketball players that they can be. And then also, you know, financially literate citizens, uh, you know, things like that, their education, all those factors never come up one time. The only conversation is about money and about wins. That's that's all that we're talking about. And that's the problem with the American development system is that, you know, the it was not designed to develop players, even though I'm calling it a development system. Or to it develop de- human beings, which is another big challenge. Yes, uh, uh, another part of that entirely. It was designed to have competition at the college level. But that's not necessarily what's best for the players. I mean, sometimes it is. You want to have them playing competitive games. And, you know, the fact that they will be playing against G League opponents, I think, is an important part of this plan. It'll be interesting to see, you know, maybe to your point, hopefully the G League players, even though these apparently will be exhibitions, will be playing hard in those games because of the fact that there will be a lot of, you know, NBA scouts in attendance paying attention to them. But, you know, that again, that's that's an important piece of it. But you also sometimes you have to be willing to let players fail to let them succeed. I also think of, you know, Zach Lowe had his uh, Luke Walton All-Stars piece last week and and talked about Duncan Robinson's development in the Miami Heat's organization in the G League with Sioux Falls Skyforce. And Eric Spolster telling him, you know, you're going to go down there and you're going to defend the opponent's best wing player and you're going to get your ass kicked. But it's going to prepare you for coming up and playing in the NBA because teams are going to go at you in the same way in the NBA as these G League teams are. Now, that's not a thing you can do if you're trying to win games, if that's the focus of your organization. And, you know, that 
but you have to be willing to let these players fail. And I think the G League in general creates that opportunity. And specifically in a situation like this where, you know, competing and winning games isn't going to be the focus. It's going to be almost exclusively about development. Another major factor for me, and you can draw this line, you know, dig back on my econ degree for this, is that when an industry or a specific niche exists where there is a massive financial swing and one entity in it that is incredibly important to the financial value is not getting properly compensated, it creates almost an inevitability of a black market of sorts because you're basically that money has to go somewhere. And so it's just, it's just going to find ways, you know, it's going to find ways to get through the cracks and everything else. Like that's just, there's too much of an incentive to do anything Mm -hmm. else. And that was a part of what, once I kind of understood how things worked, that always made me uncomfortable about the college system is that, you know, there are different ways you could talk about this within the athletic department or within other things, but it's just when getting that star player can make a difference of tens of millions of dollars to a school, to an athletic program, much less, I mean, going back to like, I remember the spike in applications after Appalachian State beat Michigan all those years ago. Like there's so many different spillover effects that the, the prestige of a school tying to their sports teams, even though that might not be related to them as an academic institution. So it's not a surprise that different entities involved in that, whether it's assistant coaches or anybody, you know, boosters, anything like that is going to be there because there are all the incentives to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, basically the NCAA is trying to, you know, legislate economics out of existence and that's never going to work i mean that there's too much incentive here for people to act in bad faith and you know the uh the the ncaa's arguments in favor of doing it i mean i I do think sometimes the NCA gets a bad rap in terms of people treat this as it's strictly a financial decision and them trying to save the money for themselves. But that doesn't affect like allowing players to get outside endorsements. I think it's underrated that a lot of this is driven by the idea that the focus of college basketball should be creating competitive games. And the reason we can't do any of these things is, oh, well, then all of a sudden Kentucky and Kansas are going to get all the – and North Carolina are going to get all the best players. And also then you look at college football and you're like, but wait, isn't that – already happening like what are, yeah. what are we really doing here and especially because that zealousness and the the obsession at times for amateurism just it, it made it harder to create a, a an honest and functioning system you know like okay you could go you be so vehemently opposed to these things and it's true that it would have changed the competitive balance but it also would have made it more possible for you to survive once there was an actual challenge and I'm not saying college basketball is going anywhere. It isn't. I mean, that's the other important part of this, and I'm happy various people brought this up on on social media today, is the best player – not only are the best some of the best players not going to college right now, but there was a time when they could go directly to the professionals, and college basketball was fine. You know, like the part of, part of the appeal of March Madness and everything else is not necessarily about the quality of play or whether those players end up becoming NBA stars. It's the, it's the structure of it. It's the pageantry, the camaraderie, the unpredictability of it. And all of those things aren't dramatically affected by the 10, let's say theoretically, the 10 best players that aren't in the NBA not being involved. Absolutely. I mean, certainly as a uh, University of Washington alum, I feel like uh, the one and done uh, era has not been good for UW, where you've had a number of these extremely talented players, many of whom have gone on to strong NBA careers. But the one and done guys who have come in to UW have generally not had success any of the years they've had those top rated prospects. They have not made the NCAA tournament for whatever reason. So, uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if we'll be missing them if uh, we do go back to a model where those players either are going to the G League or are going into the draft. I mean, I think the other question you have to ask as we talk about this is, you know, is the NBA going far enough? Because, you know, it's one thing to take these players once they get, you know, past high school, but still they're involved in the AAU system and that creates its own negative incentives and, uh, you know, its own troublesome development aspects. Uh, I think they're you know significantly mitigated if you don't have the aspect of people trying to steer these players to a specific college, but it's still going to exist. And at some point, is this a stepping stone to the NBA bringing, you know, kids who are 15 years old, 14, 15, 16 years old and putting them into academies where they can both, you know, study and be focused on developing as basketball players, much like we see in Europe. Or at least providing the option for that structure should players want to do it. And and I, I, 
something else that struck me, I've, I've spent a little bit more time doing the Team USA youth activities in Colorado Springs. That was actually one of my favorite things I did during this league year was going to Colorado Springs shortly before the start of the season. But one of the big challenges of relying heavily on Team USA for that is that structure is not available to all high-end high school basketball players, even in the United States. You know, that's there are plenty of people who aren't U.S. born or who maybe the selection process isn't going isn't gonna to get them in or there could be other complications. And I would love for the NBA to have a larger role in that. And, and something I think Rafael O'Hara is the one who I saw bring this up on Twitter today was that when we see the NBA getting more involved in Africa, getting more involved in, in Asia, and with some of the academy structures that they have there, and then, and then the, the basketball league that will eventually start in Africa, is trying to get more of a handle on the sources of talent. You know, Europe has kind of got its own thing going. But getting, and, and I think some of that, the right answer there is helping provide structure. You can't guarantee everybody just like you can't guarantee american high school kids will do the quote-unquote right thing but giving them a pathway should they choose to embrace it can be a really positive thing yeah and i you know i feel like there's probably more uh, the the nba feels more of an impetus to do that in asia and africa because i think the feeling is you know there's not necessarily the quality of coaching and you know scouting uh, necessarily that can you know put those best players in a pipeline to develop as prospects you know in in those locations as there is in the u.s which is all things considered pretty efficient at uh identifying talent if not necessarily at developing it but uh yeah i mean i think that you know, if we're projecting out down the road, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, I think that we, we could see those kind of basketball academies here. We could. And I was thinking, I was reading, I'm in the process of reading um, Tangy to the Top right now, and this the story of Joel Embiid's development in Cameroon is a is a kind of a story about how this could go and how you, a better system could get there. I mean, he hadn't really picked up a basketball, but was a tall kid who played volleyball, and then got kind of connected through different people to a basketball camp and then was still incredibly raw, but then ended up, you know, kind of that became a platform to get him looked at by American high schools. And then being in an American high school system got him all the way and being and being successful and everything, all the hard work that he did into Kansas. And you think about how having not only having greater support for the people who are passionate about it, how that can be a big thing, but also just in some of these countries that have, you know, they have everybody has people who are talented athletes, making sure that one of the things they consider as basketball is another way to improve the quality of your league eventually is to make sure that, you know, just like in, in many countries that is that sport is soccer, that have making sure that kids or young adults or whatever it's going to be that are interested in sports give your sport a shot. For sure. And I think this is going to become especially relevant in the U.S. is more and more players aren't playing high school at the youth level. You know, where where do those prospects go or do they become basketball players? Do they go to some other sport? Yeah, it's a, a, a great point. Only ha- only have a couple minutes left. Are there I, I've been, you know, it's what kind of basketball related things you talked about the scheme that they've done is there anything like during this hiatus that you've done for me it's been watching watching film of college of college prospects you know we're doing that a little bit for dunked on but i'm ahead of that how have you kind of gotten your basketball jones out or have you during this time yeah the interesting thing is i have not watched a lot of basketball the first week i was watching games to sort of catch up with on teams that i hadn't seen you know recently leading up to the uh the stoppage of play because of the fact that i had been traveling in in boston to the uh to boston for the sloan conference the weekend uh beforehand but uh it, it hasn't been a lot lately I've, I've mostly been working on you know draft projections went through and looked at whether there are ways to improve those and concluded that actually they, they did quite well when I looked out of sample at last year's projections uh, or, or this year's this year's rookies uh, tended to, to be projected pretty well. So I didn't find a lot to change there. And then uh, now working on international translations and projections. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read his excellent work at ESPN, and you can also follow him on Twitter at kpelton, K-P-E-L-T-O-N, and you can listen to the fabulous Pelton cast and his appearances wherever they are, everywhere else. He's done some really great work, written work recently, and you can listen to to everything else that he does. And he's doing... 
because he is a far greater person than me, he is doing grades for the uh, the horse tournament. It is basketball, but uh, he, he's doing that over at ESPN, so you can check that out. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast, wherever you're choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts, and actually, if you want to be super amazing, if you use another podcast player, you can actually leave reviews both places that helps people find the show. Also, spreading word of mouth, if you like a single episode or the concept or like the show that we do, you can tell people about it in person, hopefully not very in person now, staying socially distanced, but that or social media, wherever wherever you see fit. Also, subscribing, downloading every episode, that is so important, especially now, but especially for a show like this where it doesn't come out on a specific day of the week. There's no way to get into a habit with Real GM Radio because it will always be about when I'm available, when my guests are available, and many of them even with the expanded available time, still ha- still have a lot going on. So can't be like, hey, it's going to be Thursdays or anything like that. So can do that. But the single most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is Bet Online. Go to Bet Online and use the Podcast One promo code for your sign-up bonus. And you can also listen to the Ross Tucker draft analysis, which will run after I finish talking about all of this. So you can listen to that, which is which is very cool that they're we're putting that on the end of this. If you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, you can email me, NBA at gmail.com. I promise that I will take the time to read it, but I will also try to respond if I can. Um, as crazy as it sounds, even though there aren't games to watch, I still have a lot going on, um, which I'm incredibly thankful for doing a lot of draft work, some of which has appeared on Dunked On, some of which is not yet there. I'm going to hopefully be writing draft pieces at The Athletic. Also had three different pieces that are coming out either that are already out or will be out by the end of this week. One collaborative one on the Bucks and Giannis's Supermax, one on the Hornets with Rod Boone, and then I did my own piece on, a, I drew out a hypothetical if the cap drops for the 2020-21 season from the current projections. That was an exercise that I wanted to do, just kind of think about how things would be would be different so you can check that out as well and dunked on still going strong five days a week this week we covered uh, we started a new series of what i call battle plans which is talking about kind of the core and the short and long term of the key players for different franchises we've done the southeast and the central division inspired by the bulls turning over their front office then we also continued agent rankings this week as well and did a scout of isaac okoro auburn wing real gm radio will of course be back next week i already have my guest lined up but many of you know my policy is that i will not reveal who my guest is until it is recorded but i am very excited about it so that will be a lot of fun assuming it works out and if it does you will subscribe if you subscribe and download you will know as soon as it is up thank you so much for listening take care make it a great day and keep listening for the ross tucker segment which is going to start right now Hey, it is former NFL player Ross Tucker from the cleverly named Ross Tucker Football Podcast. And perhaps more importantly, for our purposes right now, the Even Money Sports Betting Gambling Podcast, which, like everything else, is presented by Bet Online. And I am here to give you my top 10 picks for the 2020 NFL draft coming up. On Thursday, April 23rd, by the way, you can bet on pretty much any player where they're going to be drafted. And I'm going to give you some tips on that right now. Just use the code podcast one at betonline.ag and you'll get number one, a glorious signup bonus. And number two, you'll be able to make the draft even more entertaining than it already is when you place over under bets on where these guys are will get selected. Obviously, I think, number one, the Cincinnati Bengals are going to take the LSU quarterback, Joe Burrow. Would be very surprised if they didn't. Number two, with the Washington Redskins, some rumors about them taking a quarterback. I don't believe it. Chase Young, the defensive end from Ohio State, is an absolute stud. That's who the Redskins will take. By the way, at Bet Online, his over-under is two and a half. So I love the under. Chase Young is going number two. So take that money, bet online, put it on the under on Chase Young. Number three, Detroit. A lot of speculation that the Miami Dolphins or the L.A. Chargers will trade up to number three to take a quarterback. I don't think it's going to happen. I think both the Dolphins and the Chargers are comfortable getting either Tua Tungavailoa from Alabama or Justin Herbert from Oregon. And I don't think either one of them 
ends up trading up. So I think the Lions end up taking another Ohio State Buckeye. That is Jeffrey Akuda, the corner, at number three. Number four, you've got the G-Men, the New York Giants. They're either going to go offensive tackle or linebacker Isaiah Simmons. And Dave Gettleman just can't help himself. He loves athletic linebackers. Isaiah Simmons can fly. I think he goes number four. His bet on line over under is six and a half. I really think he hits the under. Because even if the Giants don't take him, I think maybe the Dolphins or the Chargers do if they don't elect to take a quarterback. So I like the under for Isaiah Simmons. Then you get to the Miami Dolphins, number five, and they'll debate Tua Tungavailoa or Justin Herbert in this position. They're going to go Tua. You know, I know there's some medical questions, but there's some performance questions with Herbert. I think they're going to go Tua Tungavailoa and feel like they got a guy who otherwise would have been the number one pick at number five. Number six, it's the L.A. Chargers. I think they're happy to take Justin Herbert from Oregon. 4.0 GPA, smart kid, big, great arm. He's got five and a half is his over-under for bet online. That's a tough one. I guess here I'm going over, but I'm not sure that I'd put a lot of money on the over there because Herbert could go at three, he could go four, he could go five. So keep that in mind when you're making your bet over at bet online. Number seven, Carolina Panthers. Derek Brown, the D tackle from Auburn. His over under at bet online is eight and a half. So I'm going under there. Number eight, the Arizona Cardinals need a right tackle desperately. I think they'll take Alabama right tackle Jedrick Wills instead of Tristan Wirfs from Iowa at number eight. So go ahead and take Wills. At number eight, the Arizona Cardinals. Number nine, another offensive tackle, Makai Becton. This dude's almost 6'8", 370 pounds, and he can move. He's the number nine to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Number 10, you've got Andrew Thomas, in my mind, going to the Cleveland Browns. They need a left tackle desperately. Started three years at Georgia. Very gifted player. His total in terms of where he'll get picked at bet online is 10 and a half. So he would be another under there if the Browns take him as I suspect. Remember, you can place any of these bets at betonline.ag after you use the promo code podcast one. And if you want to hear the rest of my picks for round one, make sure you're listening to the Ross Tucker football podcast and the even money podcast. So then you can make even more bets over at betonline.ag.